Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is just a reminder that everything on the podcast is intended to be informational, educational, and entertaining. This is no way a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic process. If you find yourself in need of more direct support, please reach out for professional help. Or if you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or call 911. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Today, my special guest is the Director of Leadership Development for Youth at the Center. I have Sean Jeffers. Hi, Sean. Hi, LaShonda. How are you today? How are you? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. Good. Well, I'm so glad that you're here as a guest, and I'm going to start with you like I do all of my other guests and ask, what is your labor of love? Yeah, I think um, my labor of love is uh, helping young people find their voice, find who they are. Um, and and I think uh, that was something that uh, I think I look back on a lot of growing up, like how there was times that was maybe missed uh, for me and times that really landed for me and how impactful that was. And so, uh, so that's what I try to uh, focus on for young people today. Awesome. So I do want to make a connection for my listeners who've been with me for a while and say that um, the organization Youth at the Center uh, was co-founded with uh, a previous guest on our show, Tanisha Worthy. So Youth at the Center is all about your labor of love. So can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So um, so actually Tanisha, uh, another colleague, David Weaver, and I, um, we all three work together at Public Ally Cincinnati. Uh, which was a um, AmeriCorps program that focuses on leadership development and diversity, equity, equity and inclusion. And I um, mean, while we worked at public allies, we always kind of talked about, you know, that AmeriCorps, you have to be at least 18 to be in. And it was typically 18 to 30 ish or so folks who, you know, the age range of people we served and was like, what if there was a public allies type role or opportunity for a younger generation, grades seven through 12? And so in 2015, um, the three of us, uh, David, Tanisha, and myself, got the chance to collaborate on planning the, um, at the time, what was called the City of Cincinnati's Youth Commission of Cincinnati's Citywide Youth Summit. Uh, and uh, but it was a youth summit that was created through the city. And when we asked young people about that name, they're like, that sounds like a name adults came up with. We were like, you're not wrong. Uh, <laughs> and it was like, but if you, what would you want to call it? And so Young Not Silent uh, is the name that they kind of picked for that youth summit. Um, but that's really like been our focus point is like, how do we let young people be seen, heard and valued and, and really create spaces for their voices um, to be at the center of the conversation? And that is so amazing because youth voices are so historically silenced uh, throughout development, which for me is very interesting because you hit this magic age of 18 and all of a sudden children are supposed to have autonomy and 
know how to use their voices and be able to make decisions, but they oftentimes grow up in family systems and social structures that do not give them the opportunity to practice doing any of those things. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate um, that. So I think you began to hit on it a little bit, but can you tell us about how this really um, became a labor of love for you? Yeah. Um, And so I think, I think for my journey, I would say like, you know, in 2000, Three is when I did Public Allies and uh, was uh, um, was a participant in the program. And my placement was at the Center for Holocaust and Humanity Education. And at that time, the Center for Holocaust and Humanity Education had just opened Mapping Our Tears, which was this exhibit that was featuring eyewitnesses to the Holocaust. So local survivors, refugees, uh, liberators, rescuers um, that had been part of um, that experience. And here I am, 22, you know, right out of college doing public allies. And it was just kind of brought on was like, all right, you're going to get this opportunity to kind of um, like set up how this, like how groups come through, how school groups come through. And so, because uh, it opened literally the first day that I started at uh, the Holocaust Center. Um, so they didn't really have any program or process and they uh, just kind of said, you know, figure it out, train. We had to train docents. We had to write like a guide to take people through. And given the opportunity um, to be in a position and to be trusted to kind of carry it out um, was really powerful for me. I think there's a lot of times for young people, uh, both young people, teens and young adults, that it's just kind of wait your time, wait your time, pay your dues. Uh, and it just feels a lot of times that you're not able to actively contribute to the conversation or um, really be part of, you know, sharing your thoughts and making things happen. And so um, so that experience uh, was really powerful uh, for me working at the Holocaust Center um, that as an ally. And I ended up staying on uh, as full time staff uh, until 2008 um, through that. Um, but I think there. Uh, was working a lot with young people. And I think the, um, and then had the opportunity in 2008 to come back to uh, public allies uh, on staff. And uh, and that was exciting, I think, to be able to shape this program that had been so powerful for me. And, and then in 2000, probably around 2010, 2012, those were the years David, Tanisha, and I were all on staff together. And we would often in the break room just kind of talk about like, what if, there was this public allies for younger folks like and and so youth at the center was this uh kind of name we would you know kind of kick around uh and in 2015 when we got the opportunity to like kind of work together on that youth summit um at the end of that year the a woman from the city had asked us like so she's like this event went great what happens next and we were like, y'all created this youth summit. You just asked us to be the project managers. Like, what do you envision happens next? And they're like, yeah, we don't really have a plan. Uh, and so we felt like something was needed to not just make this a one-off day for young people, but that there was a more sustained opportunity. And so I think that was where Youth at the Center um, was really born, was that idea of like, we could provide meaningful opportunities for young people, not just on one day, but really throughout the year. Uh, to be able to tap into their leadership uh, capacity. I appreciate that so much. Just this understanding that, you know, people have good ideas and they are a day or a weekend, right? Or even a, a week 
And then there's kind of not a lot to sustain throughout periods of time. So I appreciate that. I really um, honed in when you talked about for you having the opportunity to create, to be active and be trusted to do so uh, was important in this idea of wait your turn, pay your dues. And the, the reality is for a lot of people who do not fall under the dominant narrative, waiting their turn and paying their dues does not still doesn't often lead to an opportunity. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, you youth at the center or just, you know, what you do in order to kind of break down those barriers that would prevent opportunity from coming to people? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is there's that old adage that all of us have heard of children should be seen and not heard. And, um, and it's a thing we ask our young people, like, how many of you have heard this? And like, what, what do you think when you hear that? And, uh, and I think it gets back to what you talked about a few minutes ago, Shonda, about like, you know, we just expect young people once they magically turn 18 or at some point with no practice to just be able to, to advocate um, for themselves or talk. And, and so I think that has to be a, a recognition is that for young people, what they say, you know, we can't expect everything a young person says to be immediately profound. Um, but at the same point, you give them platform, you give them opportunities, you engage. Um, we say our, our, you know, kind of our main rule is we don't tell young people what to think. We challenge them to think. And, and I think that idea of like, you ask young people, you question, you explore, you engage. And at the end of the day, they end up, you know, kind of being able to feel like they've participated, they've contributed, you know, contributed to um, to what's happening, to like the broader conversation. And so specifically with like a Young Not Silent, for instance, um, you know, every year we start off the process by saying, what is the, what's the theme you want to go with? So like last year, for instance, the theme they selected was taking the torch. And then we kind of ask them, what does that theme mean to you? They come up with like ways that that what that theme means to them. And then they come up with, um, um, you know, like visual representation. So it's like the theme, how the theme is really like leading to their leadership and the logo for the event all kind of come up from those conversations with young people so that they can kind of see how that happens. Uh, and recognize that process. And I think the whole time it's just, you know, our job is to just sit on the sidelines and say, all right, tell me why you think we should do this or, you know, tell me more about this idea or things you have. And so really having the young people um, feel like they play a role uh, in the process and that it's youth led. And I think those are the important things. I find that to be so profound for a couple of reasons. One, so often, I believe that adults are um, and expecting uh, youth to have uh, these profound things in the way that adults do, instead of looking at how profound young people are in their youth. So, you know, we as adults, which is not universal, obviously, we've had different experiences and interacted with uh, privilege, access, and restriction and oppression in different ways. However, 
you know, young people really do have such a brilliant voice to contribute to how we see the world. And in some ways it is simple. Like we overlook the simplicity of some things. And then in some ways, I think we make things way more simplistic than they are. And we miss the nuance and the complications in it. And so when I have had the privilege of working with youth, and I will say youth is definitely not my primary demographic in regards to who my services are directed towards or who I get to work with very often. So when I do work with youth, it is I am always surprised at just how refreshing it is. And in in the times that I've been able to spend with youth and I open up some questions and just l- genuinely listen to what they have to say, I am floored by just how much I miss by not talking and engaging with youth more often. And so it's been become a point of how do I situate myself where I can engage with and be in relationship with young people, not because I need to mentor them, not because I need to tell them something, not because I need to direct them, but because I actually want to be in relationship with them. And that's something that I've learned to appreciate through my work with our collaborations over the years. What's one of the things that keep you going, keep you doing this work, keep you wanting to um, support and uplift the voices of young people? Yeah, so I think something as you were as you were uh, framing that question that came to me was one of our last meetings before the shutdown back in February. Um, uh, one of uh, there was a student, uh, Kendall, who came and he it was the first time he had come to one of our meetings and and it had, he had found out about it through his mom and who'd come to a different program uh, we had and. Um, and so we we're just kind of talking about like framing what we want to do. And he's, he said, can I ask you a question? And to me and Tanisha, I was like, sure. And he's like, why do y'all do this? And it was like, do what? It's like, <laughs> why do y'all work with young people? Like, he's like, why is that something that's a passion of yours? And, um, and it just kind of was like, you know, I think so often we, you kind of have that idea of why you do it, but you're just like, you know, you're setting up a meeting, right? You're setting up food, you're setting up like, you know, the chart paper on the wall to get things ready for the conversation. And then you just kind of like, I think like that question was, you know, kind of brought, brought me back to a place of like, all right, before we just jump into doing the work, especially when new young people come and, uh, and participate, I think there's a big thing if they want to know, who you are, what's motivating you so that they can kind of relate to that. I think oftentimes in education, there's that idea of like young people don't um, care how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm-hmm. And, and and so I think that dynamic and, uh, and so I uh, had shared with him that day that, you know, for me, uh, I think my, my motivation for doing this work is recognizing is that there's a finite amount of time that you get to be a young person, get to be in high school and get to kind of um, complete the opportunities or participate in the different programs that you want to during that time. And and for me, uh, I'm an Eagle Scout. I was active in scouting. And, and there was, I felt like back in like 
early on, um, there were, it was supposed to be like a youth led program, but uh, it felt like adults were really not allowing young people to lead. And so it felt very, uh, it was discouraging uh, for me. And it made Indian think that was like kind of one of the first times where I felt like I really engaged in advocacy and activism was trying to like shift this dynamic of like to the adults in charge of like stop trying to take over and 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 I think there was a lot of energy spent and finally um, there was a different advisor put in place that was much more receptive to youth uh, ideas that um, was great but it was also for like two years it was spent more arguing about this is supposed to be a youth led program, like, but the adults don't allow the young people to do anything. Um, and so there's a lot of times as a young person that it felt like the energy was not being able to move forward the projects you wanted to, as it was more like arguing about the general, you know, kind of philosophy of like, what does it mean for something to be youth led? And I think that's mm -hmm. also a, <laughs> that's also a very, uh, a conversation that I recognize a lot of adults think very differently than a lot of young people when they hear the words youth led. And so sometimes that's an important thing to like level set. But, uh, but for me, I think that was recognizing that like, I learned a valuable lesson there about the power to advocate and, and but also it just felt like there was a lot of, a lot of mental energy being spent on arguing as opposed to really feeling like, that I was being fostered at that point. And mm -hmm. if I hadn't had that, if there wasn't a shift in the leadership and I hadn't had the new uh, advisor come along, like, I don't know if I would have gotten that lesson because it would have not necessarily been appreciated or affirmed in the way it was. But I think when the new advisor came along, there was a lot more, um, I think, opportunity to talk, reflect, process that experience and um, and really try to, put in place a different, um, a different path moving forward. Yeah. You know, I listened to you talk and it, it struck me that growing up, I don't even know that I would have had the expectation for youth leadership. You know, now I attribute some of that more to my own personalized trauma that I experienced that led me into this uh, this space of survival that looked a lot like shape-shifting and people-pleasing. And mm. so I learned to get along by doing whatever I thought was needed of me or wanted of me. And I just kind of became whatever that was. And so I, I really do have such an appreciation for hearing a story about a young person who had, um, who even had a sense of self enough to advocate for self and um, how much I just appreciate that because that is definitely not something that I developed until later in life. Now, I, I knew how to advocate for others. That was something that I, I think I, I, I developed mm. younger. But advocation for self is definitely something that came later. So I even just appreciate hearing that. And and I was thinking the same thing before you said it. When this new advisor came, you know, it really contributed to your belief that advocacy is, is, is uh, powerful. And, you know, like matters. And so I'm glad that the new advisor did 
um, you know, provide that for you. So I realize as we're talking that I kind of set the stage talking about youth at the center, um, just linking back to, you know, Tanisha being a previous guest. But I also know that you do so much more and have done so much more outside of your role with youth at the center. So just tell us a little bit more about how your labor of love gets carried out in maybe other capacities. Definitely. So I think a couple things that uh, come along is one uh, is uh, Camp Quest. And so um, so in scouting, so when I was part of um, scouting, uh, for a long time, scouting had a policy that, that they did not allow uh, gay people or atheists to be part of the organization. And And I think for me, when I joined Cub Scouts at six, right, like I had no clue. Uh, that I would be gay or later identify as atheist. Like, you know, that wasn't on my, my mind. And, um, and it wasn't really until later, um, you know, long after I had earned my Eagle Scout uh, that those really, those ideas really uh, solidified uh, for me. And so it was ultimately when I was 21, I was actually working at a Boy Scout camp. And that was when I came out as gay and and quit uh, um, and quit the uh, the organization um, and and so I really think at that point, even though probably since you know since I was a, a child, uh, you know, had done two or three weeks of camp at least a summer, and never re- I was thinking when I left scouting that uh, just because there were so many. Um, so many stereotypes or, you know, kind of misconceptions about gay people being around children that I had heard growing up, that it was just the thought process. It's like, I would never be able to be uh, in a camp kind of environment. And then I found out about Camp Quest, which was a local uh, summer camp uh, that had been founded that was mainly for children of non-religious families. And and so then summer 2003 was the first summer I did Camp Quest and uh, and Camp Quest was a, you know, pretty generally liberal, open, affirming uh, group. And uh, it was never it was never an issue. Uh, and so since 2003, I've been part of Camp Quest every year. And and I think that opportunity uh, to find a place where you can be outdoors, uh, which is a passion of mine, um, help young people be you know, able to create community where they feel that they're welcome and affirmed is always important to me. Uh, and then in 2008, I joined Glisten Greater Cincinnati uh, and uh, and serve uh, and still am part of Glisten and still part of Camp Quest today and serve. Can you tell uh, us a little, can you tell us what Glisten is? Yeah. So Glisten is uh, an organization that is focused on education in schools, um, mainly uh, that we want to create safe schools for all students, regardless of sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. So, um, so I do a lot of training and uh, and also lead our annual youth summit uh, for Glisten. Um, but it's really about how do we recognize that every student, regardless if they're gay or not, or if they're trans or not, every student has a sexual orientation, every student has a gender identity. Um, but beyond that, a lot of our students start to um, right, like get these messages about gender roles or expectations of who they're supposed to be that um, pretty early in life. 
and uh, and how those play out and can sometimes limit opportunities. So like one one short statistic on that is that um, students who don't feel connected to their school are three times as likely to drop out as students who feel a connection to their school. And then, um, but if like, if you're a student who, you know, let's say, you know, sports aren't your thing. And the only thing maybe that is like, you're really connected to is maybe like a choir or a drama type program, but you're worried about being made fun of. Even if you're not gay, you're worried about being made fun of that someone could think you are gay because those programs, choir and drama typically have more of a stereotype as that's where the LGBT, you know, kids hang out um, and whatnot. And so, um, so I think that student's just going to not participate because they don't want to deal with it. And if they're not participating there, then what other thing is connecting them to the school if they're not feeling, you know, so I think with Glisten, what we're really trying to do is talk about how do we help schools create welcoming places for all students um, and that. So I think that is probably that like thread throughout, whether it's Youth at the Center, Camp Quest or Glisten, is really about this idea of like, how do we help young people feel welcome um, regardless of how they identify in the spaces that they um, occupy. This idea of a sense of belonging is so huge. You know, when we look at the resilience factors that um, have been found for people who overcome their trauma and don't go on to recreate it, you know, a sense of belonging is one of those things. And what I heard the most about really, like you said, this thread about, you know, the way you've served in community and with youth is creating a sense of belonging, whether it's youth led programming that really gives them the opportunity to create and execute or creating the felt sense of safety and belonging by creating inclusive spaces or simply working with institutions to help them understand the importance of connectivity and, and making sure that people do feel connected. Um, when I did work with Sandy Hook Promise and did a lot of programming, youth-focused youth programming, um, one of them was Start With Hello. And it was kind of this program that we went around the country uh, doing these presentations for schools because we understood that when a child can feel connected and safe at school, like they belong, then they don't have to um, find alternative sources of connection and community. Uh, because they are kind of embedded in where they are. And so what happens when they're not connected at school is they still need to feel like they belong, mm -hmm. right? That doesn't go away. It is a human need. So where can they find it? And, you know, part of what was happening is children were turning to whoever would accept them as they were. So I talk about this from a training perspective, too. Um, there, there is a lot of overlap between the neighborhood gang and the neighborhood church. Mm in regards to what it can provide. But sometimes there's not a lot of overlap in what they do provide and why a child will run to that neighborhood gang instead of that neighborhood church is because they can show up in that gang just as they are. But oftentimes they can't show up to church that way. Mm -hmm. And there is a sense of welcoming and belonging that is given from one that has to either be earned or is constantly scrutinized in another. And so when I'm working with faith-based organizations, we talk about that. 
if this is a basic human need, why are people running over there and they're not coming here? And I think at the root of it, it's that. It is that sense of belonging that a person is not um, othered or ostracized or um, all of those things, because that has a very physiological response. We move into our sympathetic nervous system or into shutdown when we can feel that we're being othered. And no one has to say a word in order for us to feel othered. And so I love, 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 love what you're talking about because it's so important. And I think sometimes we underestimate that as adults. Indeed. I think building on that, um, just thinking about the amount of times we tell young people they're not enough when they show up to someplace. If our first interaction with a young person is like, pull up your pants or it's something about their appearance or something about how they need to walk right, talk right, you know, what act right, like whatever the case may be. Um, I think there's a lot of times young people just feel like they're being not seen for who they are, but having to act that part of what I think what you talked about earlier was like, you know, like you just kind of could play that part sometimes. Um, and so it's like, if we're also recognizing, you know, early on, we talked about the importance of allowing young people to have a voice and that they need to practice using their voice so that they can gain in their confidence about what they're saying and how they show up. And um, we also need to, you know, allow young people more opportunities to show up as themselves so that they're not just putting on a role or a performance for us um, as adults and just trying to please because um, I think there's a lot of danger around just acting for others and not for yourself about come uh, on especially in your identity development time right like high school is your prime identity development where you are really starting to understand who you are in terms of race and class and gender and like and how those things navigate the world and we don't I don't think like we we do a disservice to young people because when we don't feel comfortable talking about race or class or gender or sexual orientation or religion, like with young people. So we just ignore that those things, we don't think young people are either mature enough or ready to talk about them, but usually as adults, we're the ones who can't have the conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and then I think beyond that, like, even if we do engage, um, if we don't allow young people to really be their authentic selves when they're starting to develop, then more often what they do is get comfortable playing the part of pleasing others than really showing up how they most um, identify or are most comfortable being themselves. Dead on. And then you know what happens? They come to people like me and pay us a lot of money <laughs> to help them go back yeah. <laughs> and refigure it out. Like, I, you know, no, don't get me wrong. I was one of those people paying a lot of money, but this yeah. is what happens. Like the, the number of people who come and it's like, here's this thing that happened, this life experience. And it has made me realize I have no idea who I am. And I have been a person that said that. And it is absolutely, it makes complete sense that you don't know who you are when you spend a lifetime being who you think other people need and want you to be. And so my lack of sense of self made sense to me when I realized that I had developed to, uh, I mean, I had mastered shape-shifting. I had mastered people-pleasing, but I had a complete deficit in understanding what my authentic experience was in life. And so that is a thing that 
everyone doesn't have to go through if we create the safety and opportunities for young people to truly be themselves. And, and what frustrates me, again, kind of a reiteration of what I said before, is that our expectations of young people, um, once they've crossed this invisible threshold of 18 years old, become so unreasonably high when we have not invested in them. Like, how dare we have right. such a high expectation of people whom we refuse to invest in? You wouldn't have that kind of expectation from the stock market. If you ain't put no money in, why are you expecting this huge dividend? Like I, I, you wouldn't, you would be like, oh, oh wait, I didn't invest in that. So I'm not going to get a return. And so what happens when we actually invest in our young people is the, the expectation of return becomes less of having to push them to do and be because we've invested in who they are naturally, who they are genuinely. And we get returns on that because they grow into adults who feel more secure in who they are authentically. And I, now I will also be fair to say that so many adults don't know how to do this because it wasn't done for us. Right. So we, we, we can't, really have a grasp of what that's like because it, it was never invested in us. And I've either seen that propel people, like what you were saying, propel them to invest in youth, or I see people get real resentful, right? It's this notion of um, what is, I forgot. So I'll use a snow day or a cold water, cold winter day here in Cincinnati. A couple of years ago, there were several days where like in the morning when kids would be catching buses, it would be like below zero, and so school would be canceled. And the number of adults who were so upset about that, not because they were missing work or couldn't figure out childcare, because they couldn't believe that these kids nowadays don't have to stand in sub-zero temperatures to go to school. And I'm like, instead of having that perspective, why not acknowledge that it sucked, that you did? <laughs> you know what I mean? Why not have the perspective of like, wow. It, it's good that now we realize that it's okay to put the safety and health of children above academic performance, for example. And so I really just hope that if there are adults who have children, work with children, engage with children, live in a neighborhood with children, you know, really just breathe, <laughs> then we can take this opportunity to go like, hmm, how can I invest in youth. And by investment, I want to point out that I simply mean invest in creating the safety that allows them to be exactly who they are and learn from them because they can be some of our greatest teachers. Yeah. And that, I think so much of what you just said, I think hits on some of the, uh, I mean, it's the traumatic ways we try to inform childhood. Like, right. It's the idea of you know, hurt people, hurt people. So like, oh, like these, the ways that I was traumatized as a child, like they made me tougher. So I'm going to pass them on. Um, you know, it's like when bullying happens and it's just kind of passed off as like kids will be kids, boys will be boys. And we just say these things, like it's just a rite of passage, like these things happen. And I think so many of these things that happen to us that we've just accepted and we don't even have the ability to think like, that's not the only way things can be. Like, just because it happened to us doesn't mean that it has to be this exact way for a next generation of young people. And and I think that's been the thing over the summer that I've seen, you know, from 
some of the uh, Gen Z folks who have been out really leading a lot of Black Lives Matter rallies and doing some things that it's like they they see that possibility. They see a different world is possible and they're not just content um, kind of accepting the, you know, I would, I, I don't even know what to call it, but I guess just accepting like what has happened in the past and, you know, that they, they're demanding that something changes. And, and I think that's a big thing for educators and for adults is when young people ask us a simple question, if a young person is in your classroom and they say, why are we doing this? We just have to understand what the young person is oftentimes saying is like, I'm trying to make sense of this in my brain and trying to figure out where I can compartmentalize this lesson for today. But the minute a young person asks why, a teacher oftentimes assumes it's insubordination mm. and mm -hmm. that they're just like, mm, like you're, you know, like you're challenging my authority. And so we're so focused on trying to maintain control that we don't even recognize that like that focus on control is wiping out the ability to create relationships, the ability to really foster independence and critical thinking in our young people. And so I think those are the things oftentimes that, you know, young people ask us why, just try to understand like, where's that coming from? Try to get a little bit more context you know, and, and having that conversation um, at that level so that we're equipping young people with the knowledge and the awareness that they can, you know, navigate what we're asking them to do. That's so good, Sean. I thought of so many things when you were talking. One is, yes, when we have that idea of they're challenging my authority, they're being insubordinate or disrespectful, um, and we hearken that back to our attempts to hold on to control. Let's think about that. What happened is you lacked control at some point or still at some point, and you're trying to exercise the control now. But the thing that's so messed up about it is we use some of the most vulnerable populations to try to get our control. Right. Mm -hmm. These are some of the same people who are not exercising that attitude towards other people in positions of power or people who are maintaining oppressive systems, but people who um, who are just trying to learn and trying to understand. So I would love for that to be kind of this this sense of awareness for those who are in positions who work with young people. And it reminds me of a personal parenting philosophy that I have adopted over time. Because I definitely did grow up in the why was disrespectful, right? And mm -hmm. could be met at any given time with because I said so. And I was socialized and culturalized to be like, okay, that's that's the adequate answer. Then I had a child of my own. And my my first, my son, he's he was always a why child. He, <laughs> why? And how sometimes I really did want to fall back on the, because I said so, because, but what I realized is if that is my only answer, then I need to evaluate why I'm requesting or demanding this thing of my child, mm -hmm. because usually it has more to do with me than it does to him. And if it does have something to do with him and his safety or, or whatever, his learning, then I should be able to provide an answer because this, this, and this. And so that is a personal parenting philosophy. If I got to an answer with, 
don't ask me that or because I said so, then I need to pause, reflect and think about why I'm actually asking for the thing I'm asking for. And that has that has come back and had me shift some requests and expectations throughout my parenting because I realize when I am like, I mean, a simple example is, you know, oh my God, turn it down. <laughs> and it's like, why? It's been this volume all day. And if I'm like, because I said so, well, the answer is really because I'm tired. I'm tired and it's too loud. So then it makes me think, okay, so what what do I need to do to take care of my needs without infringing on the needs of my child, which is to maintain the routine he's had. And so I think for those who are in positions of in authority, working with young people, we can sometimes misassess our own need and blame it on the behavior or the output or the words or whatever from a young person. And that can be so detrimental because it is teaching them a lesson. And it and it's an internalized lesson that all that usually results in something like, I'm not good enough. Like you said before, I've done something wrong. There's something fundamentally wrong with me, or I've done something bad, instead of realizing that usually it's the adults need that goes unmet and it's not that child's responsibility to meet our needs so yeah that was good yeah and i think building on that i think when we think about what we're willing to engage with young people is that you know so there's like you know typical example right like most times most of us have either had like a child or a niece or a nephew or something that we've like you know been out in public with and they maybe see somebody, they're in a wheelchair, they're walking with crutches, there's something, you know, maybe just they have a disability and have some assistance tool that our child is maybe seeing for the first time. And they look upon them and they're trying to place in their mind what's going on. And and they kind of say, like, what is that or what's happening? And like, most times as adults, what we do is we get really nervous in the situation, we pull the child's hand and we say, shh, don't stare Mm -hmm. like and and so or we'll talk about it later is the usual like thing to just kind of delay the conversation but we never talk about it later yeah so the child has only gotten an image and then been told that image is bad so it's the way that we reinforce that differences are bad for our children and we don't expose them to you know new or differing thoughts and and so if a child asks us about that and we say, we talk about it later, it's okay to say like, hey, when you saw that, what was going on with that? And, and I think that's an overarching um, dynamic that so many adults don't think young people are ready for the conversation. And so we say the young people, they're not ready to talk about race. So they're not ready to talk about sexuality. I was on a, a, a webinar recently and a teacher, was a, they were a trans kindergarten teacher. And they were told that like trans wasn't appropriate for elementary school. And so the kindergarten teacher was like, so my students can't see that I exist until what, sixth grade? Like when, when can they know right. I exist? Uh, and just that small way of saying like, we don't have to be super in depth, but like the simplest way that it was explained was uh, a good friend of mine, her child uh, transitioned between uh, kindergarten and first grade. And the first grade teacher got really worried when the parent, um, let the teacher know that the um, that the child had transitioned over the summer and be coming to school as a boy. And the teacher was like, oh, how are we going to explain this to the other kids? Like thinking she had to do like a full 
like terminology lesson with first graders. And uh, my mom was like, you just say like, that's Leo. He has short hair and likes baseball. And nine times out of 10, kids are like, oh, cool. Hi, Leo. I like baseball too. <laughs> like we can be friends. Like it doesn't require a whole lot. <laughs> it doesn't require a whole lot in that situation. But I think we, um, but I think that's the, um, I think that's really, you know, all we have to do for, for young people is let them know that like what they're experiencing, what they've seen is real. Because I think that's also sometimes has us doubting, like, did I even see what I think I saw? Because no one's willing to talk to me about it. So now I don't know how to put this, I don't know how to like make sense of this experience, you know, this dimension of diversity that I've been exposed to. And I think, and that's where we miss out for so many of our young people is we don't allow them that opportunity to explore. And so then people grow up, unfortunately, having no practice experiencing diversity and then becoming more fearful of people who are different than them. No, that is so good because when we understand how the brain actually works and, and how children learn information, so much of it is through um, the observations of how the world works around them. And when their internal experience is not affirmed externally, that really starts to mess with their reality of how that is. And so you, when you told the story, you know, about a child being somewhere and maybe seeing someone with an assistant device, um, it reminds me of when my son was probably two and we were in a grocery store and uh, there was a woman in the grocery store who had um, some visible growth for lack of a better term on her face. And as we were walking by, my son noticed he is two, kind of the epitome of curiosity, right? Looking around. And he he said, maybe not to her, but we were very much in proximity to her. Or maybe he did say to her, but something like, what is that? Or why do you have that? And as a parent, I can't lie, like my heart sped up. You know, I, mm-hmm. I didn't want him to be offensive. I I didn't want to, you know, hurt her feelings to be hurt, but I also wasn't going to try to act like he didn't notice something that was different. And this lady, man, she just looked at my son and she said, well, honey, that's just how God made me. And you know what my son said? Okay. (laughs) And he kept going, right? It, It was just, it was such an affirming experience. I also just kind of similarly to that, um, my son, we were at a church and he, his sisters were born. So he may have been like six. And I remember this woman, this older elderly black lady in this church walked up to my son and said, can I give you a hug? And he said, yes. And I thought, especially within kind of the black church tradition, people don't ask. Mm-hmm. It's like a whole part of the service. Go give your neighbor a hug. Like there is no formal consent process, by the yeah. way. <laughs> this whole thing. And I remember thinking like how much respect she had for my son to ask his permission. And I've seen how those two things have manifested in my son's life in his ability to see something that's different and ask questions and not feel a lot of shame around it, as well as to not feel like he has to, um, 
offer up himself or his body or something like that just because someone is demanding it. And those are things that I highlight because I didn't get them. Because there was so much shame around saying the wrong thing or or not behaving, right? Or, you know, you don't get to tell the adults in your life, no, you don't have autonomy of your body. Two areas that I didn't grow up learning, but but intentionally trying to break those generational trauma patterns by instilling that. And so I think all of, you know, what we're talking about is we really can help alter the trajectory of young people's lives in a positive way by treating them as humans. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it might sound basic, but do you know how often we dehumanize young people and instead they become things we want to control or things we want to alter. And so, man, the difference that it could make in a young person's life when they're just allowed to be human. And we as adults have such a, a major role we can play in that. And, and I think we help our students become human by also having basic conversations. Uh, my colleague, David, and I, we like to walk into schools and play a game we call spot the word respect on the wall. Usually within 30 seconds, we can find the word respect on a wall when you walk into any school. It can be, you know, in a core <laughs> values or respect each other, somewhere like that. Uh, and if we're working with that school, we ask the, you know, be the principal like, oh, I see you see respect is a core value. How do you find respect in the school? 90% of the time, without fail, somebody will say like, oh, respect just means respect other people. And I was like, if I went down to the English language arts room and I used the word to define the word, is that teacher going to give me credit? Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> usually that answer is no. Uh, you, do not get, you do not get credit for using the word respect to define respect. Um, but it's that idea when you ask young people, specifically like middle school, high school age kids about the word disrespect, like, you know, they could fill up whole chalkboards about the ways that they feel disrespected in a day. But if you ask them what respect looks like, they don't have a way to define it. And and I think that has to be the thing is like sometimes we have to have a conversation that says when you walk into this school, they're like, this is what we mean by the word respect. Mm -hmm. Is you know that like, there's a common understanding that all of us walk in with. And, and we sometimes tell, you know, like when you're creating these spaces, we sometimes call it the rule of seven, 17, seven hours a day, you're in a school. And these are the expectations, 17 hours a day, you're outside of the school, you've got other expectations from family, from maybe other programs, centers, spaces you go to religious institutions, you know, cultural centers, whatever the case may be. But during the seven hours a day, this is what has to happen. But the important thing is you have to have adults and youth on the same page about modeling that definition of respect that exists Come on. because we have gone into schools and we've done this activity where we have said, all right, I see you have these core values on the wall. We're going to make a continuum like this space over here says this is for the kids. This space over here says it's for the adults. This space over here says it's for both like, you know, these core values, who are they for? And half the staff go to there for the kids. It's like, how do you expect the kids to follow these core values if the staff themselves do not have any ownership of the values? And so, so there's so much about like adults just wanting to reinforce their positions of privilege. Like, well, I'm older, so therefore I just deserve to get, you know, to be able to do whatever I want to do. 
But mm-hmm. as a young person, you need to respect your elders, and then one day you too can abuse the system. Like, what, <laughs> what kind of structure are we sending to our young people? Like that this is like it doesn't make sense, and I think it's why so many times there is this constant contradiction that like a lot of young people are trying to navigate about like the do what I do or do as I say, not as I do kind of dynamic, and they just get kind of all like tripped up. Or, or for more so, more so our high school students, you know, where they're going to seven different classrooms a day. And if there's not a common definition of respect, come on, they have to become chameleons because in yep. every single class, they have to basically transform to whatever the teacher wants to happen in that class. And that, ugh, Sean, sorry. <laughs> it's just so good. I'm like, I know we need to be wrapping up. But we could talk about this for hours. <laughs> You're so dead on. And I, as a parent for my first child, again, a new parent, one of the most surprising moments that I had in parenting is when I sneezed and my son said, bless you. And he was young, you know, he could obviously say bless you or some version of it. And I remember thinking, I never taught him that. Like I never sat down and said, okay, when someone makes a noise that sounds like this, a choo or something like that, then you say, what do you say? (laughs) That didn't happen. Why did he tell me bless you? Because he had heard me do that. And the other day, uh, this weekend, um, I was doing a weekend long training. So I was away from home all weekend. And at one point, um, my partner and my girls had brought me lunch. And um, I was on a break. And I was like, thank you so much for bringing me lunch. And one of the girls was like, you're welcome. Thank you for these grapes, because I had given her some grapes. And I thought, you know, we've never had a formal moment where I sat down and said, this is what you say. But how did they learn it? It's because that's how I say please to my children. I say thank you to my children. I say you're welcome to my children. Mm-hmm. And when we believe that system, you said, and then you too can grow up to abuse the system. So true. Because it's like, but I get it in some ways, right? You've spent your whole life with a thumb pressed on you until you hit a certain age. And then now you you now get the respect that you didn't have to earn. So now we're coming up with the God dreaded millennials that everyone likes to blame everything on and every generation past it and saying they just don't understand what what is I get why you're a little frustrated because you were under the system that said all I got to do is arrive at this age and then it's just due. And now there's a generation of people saying, but wait, you have to you show respect. Like, what does that mean? And so. I just really want to encourage people to, as I always do, be aware that the experiences you've had growing up impact how you show up in the world and how you treat young people and what you think about them oftentimes is a product of that. I was working with a church once and the the invitation was, we're an older church, our membership is getting old, we're dying off, and we we don't have youth in our church. We can't seem to get youth in. Can you, in the invitation was, can you come and tell us what, I think it was like, tell us what youth are going through and, and everything. And I said, I'll come. That's probably not what I'm going to talk about, but I'll accept your (laughs) invitation. So they invited me. And one of the first exercises I did is I said, I'm just going to have this chart here. And I just want you all to throw out words when you think of youth. So to start, they didn't have a general consensus of what youth meant. 
Some people thought they meant little kids. Some people meant they meant all the way up to 30, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, so we don't have this idea. We don't know who youth are, but okay. Well, what are what are the attributes of youth? And as I began to write, oh my goodness, so many of them were negative. Yep. And then there was the there were the the couple people sprinkled in who were trying to override like creative and energetic and the other people disrespectful and this and this. So they did this whole thing. So I had this entire list of words. And then I said, similar to what you said, you know, who is this for? I said, so I want you to name only the characteristics that are exclusive to young people, meaning it does not apply to any other group of people. And of course they couldn't. And so one person was like, well, ignorant. So you ain't never met an ignorant 40 year old. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yep. So you have. So there's no word on here that is exclusive to young people. Mm. But let's listen. Let's listen to these words. And I said them out loud again. And then I concluded with this. Why you ain't got no youth. (laughs) If this is what you're thinking about them, then that's why they're not here. You don't need me to tell you what their problems are. You need me to tell you what your problems are and how your perspective of these youth is why they they're not safe here. And in that that moment, it, that, that was a transformative moment for that that aging church body, because they didn't even really understand how they brought all of this negativity towards their understanding. And if that's how you see them and understand them, that is how you're going to treat them. And so I have so much appreciation for the work that you do, Sean, in all capacities in which you do it. I have so much respect for the work that Youth at the Center does. If someone heard this and they were listening and they were like, okay, I feel a little like, yep, you were talking to me a little bit. And they wanted to know what um, what offerings you have to help people understand this. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do, how you do it, and how people can reach you? Yeah, definitely. So I think, um, and it actually, well, you were just talking about that activity. We do a very similar activity um, that we work with folks, but we have a training we call Strategies to Effectively Engage Youth. And I think the focus is really around, we can do all of the work, um, you know, in the world to helping young people find their voice, but recognizing that like, because of systems of, you know, adultism, that young people still don't always get respected. So oftentimes what happens is we do trainings for young people, they go back into schools and then they're like, yeah, like no, my teacher didn't really like want to hear my proposal or my idea. And so we recognize that we can't just work with youth. We also have to sometimes engage the adults uh, to have these conversations, to think about how you maybe approach some of these things differently to create an environment. Um, that is ready to receive and and celebrate young people. Uh, and so that, um, so I think for adults, we do two trainings mainly, either that strategies to effectively engage youth, or we also do work around diversity, equity, and inclusion, because um, the identity development of young people and supporting that is really important. Uh, and so our, so this year, actually, Tanisha and I, we are launching a Youth Anti-Racist Leadership Academy uh, for young people to really get them to explore and think about um, their leadership and how they can become anti-racist and their everyday actions. That's so awesome. So how can people find you, Sean? Sure. So on, on the web, it's uh, www.youthatthecenter.org. Um, 
facebook.com slash youth at the center. Also for our, uh, for young people, um, our uh, youngnotsilent.org and on Facebook and Instagram uh, at youngnotsilent uh, is our, um, is our kind of uh, our threads that we put up a lot more of our youth focused content on a uh, youth at the center since that's our youth led uh, youth led summit pages. Awesome. Sean, this has been amazing. Before I let you go, I always ask my guests to provide a interesting, fun, or little known fact about themselves. So what you got for us? Uh, I would say my, my fun fact is that uh, my, my dog Mobley um, and I, we go walking a lot and have lots of adventures. So Mobley has uh, a Facebook page um, that you can check out. Uh, facebook.com slash Mobley dog. And, uh, and he's actually the third dog now to uh, inherit this Facebook page um, <laughs> over the years, but, uh, but tried to uh, try to highlight. We originally created it because our, uh, my mom and Josh's mom uh, wanted to get more updates of the dogs and then mm. others wanted to see pictures. So it was, <laughs> but it was a way to kind of <laughs> keep them apprised. Yeah. What the grand dog was doing. I love it. And Mobley is awesome. So I follow Mobley. You should too. <laughs> as well as Youth at the Center and all of that good stuff. Well, Sean, um, you know, so much love for you. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk with me and always including me in ways that I can contribute to the work that you're doing. So thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. To all of my listeners, as usual, I thank you for your time and for tuning in. If you'd like to get in touch with me, please reach out at www.thelaborsoflove.com or on all the major social media outlets. Don't forget our YouTube channel where every week we have our Therapy Thursday videos. And don't forget to review, rate, subscribe, and share the podcast. Until we meet again, you all be well.